So it is good to be back uh, in the land of the living. Uh, as I uh, ended my uh, quarantine yesterday, um, I would like to think that my wife missed me this week, uh, being shut up in a room all by myself. Uh, this is not the case, I don't think. <laughs> I think she rather enjoyed a week without me, a break from me. Uh, but distance makes the heart grow fonder, right, babe? <laughs> I think you would agree with me. <laughs> um, so we have been spending the last several weeks uh, looking at, with my best effort, to interest you in reading your Bible. Um, many people are aware of Bible stories, but they don't really know the story of the Bible. And a lot of people have walked away from their faith because the stories of the Bible that they heard growing up um, in their youth uh, didn't really um, connect or make sense or work in the real world once you got out of the Sunday school setting and started encountering um, things going on in real life. Um, especially for a lot of people, uh, once you started comparing some of the things that were in the stories and the way those things were interpreted, and you compare those to um, uh, tangible scientific discoveries that seemed to not line up with what was going on. Um, but a big un understanding um, of how we got the Bible really makes a huge difference in all of that. Uh, in the way that you handle that, because the way that we, the world got the Bible uh, initially is not how you and I got our Bibles uh, individually. Um, you know, ours were nicely wrapped with chapters and verses and headers telling us what things were about with study notes and maps and the whole nine yard. And so when we first opened a Bible, that's how we got our Bible. Um, but the journey of how the Bible became uh, to be, came into being, uh, is nearly as important as the book itself because it is what sheds so much light and understanding on how we approach it and what it is and how it applies to what it is that we do. And so the, early on in the series, uh, we talked about how personal it can be. Uh, then we looked at how it was laid out with all the books, how they appear in the Bible and the way they're laid out and how they connect to each other and the order of things and you know, coming to a better understanding of how it works, which helps people approach it a little more. And then we um, have spent the last couple of weeks looking at the very beginning and the overview of kind of the story of the Old Testament. Um, but as we said at the beginning, the, the Bible didn't begin with Genesis. Uh, that's not where it happened. It began with the resurrection of Jesus. That's where the Bible began because if there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible. Because if there was no resurrection, then the story of Jesus would not be worth telling. There would be no reason to repeat uh, his story. He would have just been some, another wannabe Messiah uh, that showed up on the scene, made some extraordinary claims, did a few magic tricks, uh, you know, was executed by Rome, just like so many other wannabe Messiahs before him. And he would have been merely just a footnote in the pages of history. But when it was discovered that Jesus rose from the dead, um, all of a sudden there was a lot of interest in him as you would imagine there would be uh, after somebody rose from uh, the dead. And, and this, this message spread to non-Jewish people uh, around the Roman Empire, and they became interested in the Jewish scriptures. 
right? And not because they were interested in Judaism, because they weren't. Judaism had been around for a long time. That had not drawn any interest. Um, it was because the, the Jewish scriptures were the backstory to the person of Jesus. And so people got interested in those Jewish scriptures. And eventually, the Jewish scriptures were used as Christian texts, right? Which is a weird thing to imagine that one religion just kind of took another religion's text and it's like, now that is our religious text, right? Um, and eventually, it was given a new name, the Old Testament. The Old Testament, still at this point in history, there's still no Bible, there's no Bible yet. There's a Hebrew text, which is now considered a Christian text, which, by the way, is pretty offensive to Jewish people. You just took our text, right? Um, then there were some other documents kind of floating around out there in the ether. Uh, the, 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 there was the uh, four different accounts of the life of Jesus that was kind of floating around out there. There were some letters floating around <coughs> that were written by a church planter um, who had written to the churches that he had started. Uh, and this is where we turn our attention today. As we've moved through kind of the overview of the Old Testament, we're gonna look at this part of the New Testament and this, this church planner who had written these letters. Uh, we know him as Paul, uh, but he has stepped onto the pages of history as Saul of Tarsus. Um, but when he transitioned from his role as a Pharisee uh, to spreading the message of Jesus around uh, the Gentile world, he used his Roman name, Paul. Uh, now, Paul is so famous that almost everybody has read something by Paul, even if they don't realize they were reading Paul. Um, that's, how, that's how widespread uh, his writings are. Uh, and his writings, uh, quite frankly, have shaped a lot of Western culture and the way that we think and approach and view things. And our view of Paul on this side of history uh, is a lot higher than the way that Paul viewed himself. Uh, if, uh, here's what he said about himself in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. He said this, he said, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. <laughs> now, uh, you might ask like, Paul, why, why would you say that about yourself? That seems kind of harsh. Uh, I mean, you started churches. Uh, you wrote uh, what would later become scripture and part of what we know now as the Bible. You did so much. Well, why would you say this thing about yourself. And he would say, because I persecuted the church of God. I persecuted Christians as they were trying to spread the message. Because when Paul stepped onto the pages of history, it was to crush the Jesus movement, not to help spread it. Um, that, that what, at that time, they called it a Nazarene sect because it was following this Nazarite. And the first century Christians uh, had the audacity to hijack the Jewish scriptures and say that those scriptures meant something that everybody knew that they didn't mean, right? And knowing the law and the prophets inside out, um, Paul decided uh, to single-handedly put this new church out of business uh, because they were robbing, stealing from the Jewish tradition. And it's easy for us now to look back on it and be like, oh, Paul, you were on the wrong side. But honestly, from a very Jewish perspective, he wasn't. Um, he was doing what he thought God wanted him to do. He was following his faith, 
right? So he went to Jerusalem, got authority from the chief priests uh, to arrest, torture, and sometimes kill those who spread this fake Judaism, this offshoot, this cult uh, message. <coughs> and he carried that guilt with him uh, throughout the rest of his life. He never got over that guilt of what he had done to some of the early Christians. Um, even after he took the message to the entire known world in the Roman Empire, he still carried that level of guilt. Um, but the story of Paul is so amazing because it illustrates this important thing. It illustrates that no matter what you have or have not done, you are not disqualified from playing a role in the story of God. There's a place in the story of God for you, regardless of what your life has looked like or not looked like up to this point. You can never disqualify yourself from participation. Um, there were three things that Paul did that were, um, caused him to be a central character in the story of the Bible. First, he wrote some of it. He wrote a lot of letters to a lot of churches and people around the Mediterranean Rim. And 13 of these letters, 13 of these letters survived antiquity um, and were included in the Bible. But the thing that's important to understand about that um, is that when Paul was writing these letters, he was not writing the Bible. He was just writing letters to people he knew. Um, he, neither he nor anybody else could ever imagine Never imagined that what we now call the Bible would ever exist. Like that wasn't even something that they could, that they could comprehend. Secondly, <laughs> Paul explains how parts of the Bible work together. Um, he was an expert, an expert in the, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Jewish scriptures. Um, and he explains how our Christian view meshes with the Jewish scriptures or the Old Testament. And he had extraordinary clarity on how the Old Testament worked when it came to the person of Jesus. And, and I think if Paul would have been there the day that you got your first Bible or the Bible that you have now, um, he might've given you two points uh, of advice or two points of instruction. I think the first thing Paul might've said <coughs> is for you to read the Old Testament for inspiration and for motivation, but not for application. For inspiration and motivation, but not application. The reason I say that is because of something that he wrote um, in his letter to Corinth. In, in chapter 10, he talks about how um, the record of the things that the Israelites went through uh, and the way that God was faithful to them was both an inspiration and a warning to us. Uh, and so we should read it that way. <laughs> but remember, the entire Old Testament is centered around a contract, a contract between God and man, right? And that, that is what the whole thing is centered around. But with the coming of Jesus, there was a new contract. The old contract ceased. Jesus set up a brand new one, a new covenant, and it's a better covenant with better promises. And so you should understand that as you read through the Old Testament. This is the old covenant. This isn't necessarily for application. This is for understanding, right? And so secondly, he might tell us to take our application cues from the teachings of Jesus. If we're not to take it from the Old Testament, take it from the commands of Jesus. <coughs> because Old, Old Testament stories are fascinating 
And those stories point to Jesus. But when it comes to how to manage your life, how to manage your relationships, uh, your money, your priorities, when it comes to those things, Paul teaches us to take our instructions from Jesus's new covenant command. And if you're a part of Tapestry for very long, um, you've heard and will continue to hear me talk about the command. In fact, before I even say it, what is the command? Yeah, that was really weak for as many, many times if I have said this to you people. <laughs> yeah, when Jesus was nearing the end of his ministry, he said, I give you a new command and it isn't one to add to others. Um, it, it isn't, this is the big one. This is the ultimate ethic for all Christian behavior. Don't just put this in with the others and then give it a mix and figure out how to rank it and do this. No, this is your singular guide. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. I've said this ad nauseum here at Tapestry, right? In fact, by this unique love, Jesus would say, this is how the world will know you are my followers. Don't love as you have been loved by others. Don't love as you want to be loved. Love the way that I loved you. Then the next day, Jesus put on a demonstration of that love that changed everything as he gave up his life for them. And Paul tells us, this is the guiding light when it comes to your behavior. And when Paul is giving instructions on things that you should or shouldn't do as a Christian, he isn't giving new commands. He isn't giving new rules. He isn't giving new laws. What he's doing is he's giving application to that singular command. That's what he's doing. Um, here are a few examples. In Philippians, he says this, in your relationships with one another. Yeah, what about our relationships with another, Paul? How should we approach them? It's easy, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the one who took on the form of a servant. You treat others the way Jesus treated people, which really is both clear and terrifying because that's a high bar, right? In another letter, he wrote this. In Ephesians, he writes this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just as Christ came and got up under your burden and helped you lift it, right? Just as Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. You are to do the same to every person you meet when you have the opportunity. In that same letter, he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. <coughs> but, and it's easy to read that. And then our reaction be like, yeah, 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 forgive them. But, but do you know what they did? Like, do you, do, you, do, you know, do you know what you're asking me to forgive them of, right? To which my response and Paul's response would be, yeah, but do you know what God has forgiven you of? Yeah. Then he says this to the church in Corinth. He says, listen, <clears throat> when Christ died for you, he bought your sin debt. You owed something. Right? So consequently, you don't even belong to you. Here's how he said it in 1 Corinthians. He said, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You don't, you don't take your cue on how to behave with your body from some list of commands. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. No, you base it on what God did for you through Christ. Honor God. And I can go on and on and on about the way Paul told us how to behave, but it was based on that singular commandment 
from Jesus. Now, before we get to the third way uh, that Paul was a central character in the story of the Bible, what if Christians had gotten this last two right? Right, what if? What if that was the way that they had modeled? What, what if Christians had the reputation of people who submitted to and served others? It's not the case, but what if? What if Christians were known as people who loved others more than they loved themselves? What if Christians were widely, universally known as people who were like, I am more about your rights than I am about my rights? What, 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 would, it, what would that be like? Right? What, what would, and, by, and by others, when you say I'm more concerned about others or I love others that way, I, I'm not just talking about other Christians. I'm talking about others, others, all others that aren't you are others. Because Jesus said, listen, this is how we would be marked as true followers of Jesus. Not by what day of the week we worship on, not by how we do communion, not by how, you know, how were you baptized or how much money you give or your system of theology or what version of the Bible you use. None of that stuff. People will know you are my follower, not because you got everything uh, structurally correct. They'll know it because you treat others the way that God has treated you. I mean, just imagine how different the landscape of our country would be if Christians had gotten this right. But there's a third way that Paul is really important to the story of the Bible. Um, and this part might be a little more ac academic, um, but you guys are one of the smartest congregations I know, so I don't worry about you keeping up. Um, uh, and this may be the most important part of the message as it relates to Paul's importance to the scripture. Paul authenticates uh, the most important event in the Bible which, no surprise, is the resurrection. Um, now, here's why he's so important to this. Because there are lines of argument that exist uh, out there that disputes the dates and the authorship of the Gospels. Um, things that say that they were actually written by the Christian community many, many, many years after the eyewitnesses of the supposed resurrection had passed away or no longer around and time had separated and the myth had built over years and time and eventually became a pillar of the Christian community. Now, there are quite a few problems uh, with that line of thinking, uh, not to mention, why would a person in the first century uh, abandon their religion, right? Embrace a Jewish sect, lose their job, be ostracized by their family and their community, be persecuted, all just to worship, not a new God, but the Jewish God. While the Jewish people themselves were against you because you were a sect. What would be the motivation to do that, right? <laughs> it's very difficult to make that case against the Gospels. Um, but leaving that aside, the problem with this argument is not what we find in the Gospels. The problem is something that we find that Paul wrote. Uh, Paul's first letter to the Christians uh, living in Corinth um, is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was not some myth that built over years and was finally cemented after all the original people died. 
uh, it is proof that it was something that was accepted immediately after it happened. Um, stick with me here. Here's how we know. Nobody disputes that Paul was an actual historical figure. Every historian agrees. Yep, there was a Paul. That's when he was. Um, uh, nobody disputes that he was the author of the document that we're looking at here, that letter to the Church of Corinthians. Every historian agrees. It was written around the year 55. Um, and it was written to a church that he had started about three years earlier, around 52. Uh, he started this church after he had visited with the apostles in Jerusalem in 49, um, which came after he had visited with them previously in 40. So these are all things that are, that are universally accepted by historians. Um, uh, and when he had visited them in 40, that was only about three years after uh, his conversion uh, in 37. And several secular scholars believe Paul might have even become a Jesus follower a little earlier, around the year 35, which was only two to three years after Jesus was crucified. And the importance of all of those dates is this, is that if the Christian community cultivated this myth over decades and decades and didn't set it out until the, all of the original people who could have been witnesses to it had died, how in the world did Paul, who was so close to it in time, know about it? If it was something that developed over all those decades, how did he, right after it happened, know about it? Because in his letter to the church of Corinth, um, he says there are currently hundreds of people currently in Jerusalem who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. It was immediate, not eventual. He, here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, that gospel when he was with them three years earlier. For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance. In other words, this is what I discover. The first Christians knew immediately that the death of Jesus was significant for all people. Because he says this, it's first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. <coughs> now Cephas was the apostle Peter. Um, back earlier in the year, we talked about him quite a bit. But we would say, wait a minute, Paul, how do you know that he appeared to Peter? Paul would say, well, I just told you. I, I, I talked to him and he told me. He says this, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Well, wait, Paul, how do you know he appeared to the 12? Because like I said, I visited Jerusalem right after it happened. I've been there multiple times. They told me, but there's more. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. And at the same time, time, most of whom are still living. These people are still alive. This isn't some myth that formed after all of the possible witnesses were dead. In fact, I'm giving you the names so that you can go and check me if you would like. I can introduce you to these people if you'd like to go to Jerusalem. And then here's the amazing part. He writes this, though some of them have fallen asleep. Now, here's what's amazing about that. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, Christians described death as sleep. Do you know why? 
They did it that way because when you go to sleep, you eventually wake up. And these were men and women, these early Christians, who had lost their fear of death. It's why they were able to spread the message in the face of the persecution that they had. They lost their fear of death. Now, how did that happen? There's only one way that happens. Because they saw their rabbi die, and then they had lunch with him. If something like that happens, all of a sudden, death doesn't seem like such a big deal. You lose your fear of death, especially, especially when that rabbi spent three years before that talking about eternal life, which you couldn't really wrap your mind around, but then all of a sudden, here you are having lunch with your once dead rabbi, right? And Paul, writing very early, very early in the whole timeline, said everyone in Jerusalem knows that something important happened. And that is why the message of Jesus exploded. But he isn't finished. He goes on. He says, then he appeared to James, which is important because James was the brother of Jesus and did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. It wasn't until that singular thing that could convince anybody their sibling was the Messiah. That resurrection, right? It wasn't until that, that he, James, believed Jesus' claims. And then he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and was eventually martyred for that belief. And James said this to Paul directly. Also in this letter, Paul quotes a creed that existed in the Christian community. Um, and the reason there were creeds, um, and, and they were very carefully crafted um, statements to make sure people who at that time, most of the people were by and large illiterate. Uh, they weren't taught, and most people weren't uh, able to read back then. They were very specific and they were simple because they wanted to make sure that people could repeat these things and they had the foundational information correct. So would they make these creeds, right? And, and as Paul is writing this letter that is written very quickly after all of these events take place, there's already a creed that exists around the resurrection. <coughs> and the reason is, is because it was embraced immediately. Uh, he, here's the creed that existed. The creed was this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. That was it. Simple, but they wanted it to be correct. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Very early, the Christians in the Jewish community had accepted it as truth. So, Paul is extremely important in the story of the Bible. He wrote some of it. Uh, he explains how all of the parts work together. Uh, he corroborates the resurrection, which is the foundational uh, piece of our faith. But while Paul is writing, there are a few other people writing as well. Uh, James, brother of Jesus, wrote a letter. Uh, Paul dictated a couple letters uh, that survived and were included in this collection of writings that we now know as the Bible. Uh, John 
wrote three letters uh, that survived and then wrote a really odd document that we don't know what to make of. <laughs> uh, and the other documents and, uh, were written and survived. Well, in the fourth century, fourth century, we're talking 300 and something years later, uh, the Jewish scriptures, uh, well, Constantine first lifted the ban on Christianity. So all through all of that early time, there was a ban on it. Finally, in the fourth century, Constantine lifts it. And for the first time, scholars were able to openly, without fear of retribution, uh, work on these documents, right? And the empire responsible for executing Jesus uh, funded the collection and the copying of these documents, and towards the end of the fourth century, the Jewish scriptures were bound together with the collection of Christian letters and manuscripts to become known as the Bible, that book that we have today. And this, this, this original Bible was an extraordinary, extraordinarily large and expensive book. And for a long, long time, there was only one. It wasn't something that was out there. But that book would eventually shape Western culture. But more personally, that would, book would shape my life. And to some degree, whether you're aware of it or not, the book has shaped your life. Which is why we should read it. It is so important. But Andy, 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 it's so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. I don't even know where to dive in. And to start, to which I say, yeah, you're not the only one to feel that way. And you're in luck, because we're going to talk about that next time. <laughs> but for now, it's important to know that as the whole thing got put together, what it is and how it interacts with itself, because it gives a whole new understanding as to what it means to you and to how you use it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you. And not just that we have record of the things we have record of in the scriptures, but Lord, I thank you for the way the whole thing came to be. That it is so unlikely that this collection of writings that we have would ever, ever have survived time and been put together the way that they have been. And to watch the thread that runs through it all over thousands of years, over dozens of authors, through gaps of time, all to come and piece itself together to tell the story. God, that in itself is worth so much and says so much about the document itself that we hold. Lord, I pray that, that as we wrap this series up soon, that God, you help us to come to terms with what it is that we actually hold in our hands when we hold a Bible. 
the sacrifices that went into it and what it can mean to us. Not just how it's already shaped culture and how it's already shaped our life, but how it can lead us to taking up our role in the story of God. Lord, I thank you that we have been gifted with such an incredible thing. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out, giving me another chance to convince you that the Bible's cool and worth reading. Uh, We look forward to next time.